Good morning. Let's turn together to First um, Thessalonians, chapter four. I really love this book. You say, well, you have a favorite book in the Bible? No, actually, it's it's a letter in the book. I lo- I really love this book. <laughs> Hope you do too. So we are in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning with verse 9. Let's read it uh, together here, um, and then we'll look at the content. Verse 9, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, and that you aspire, I'm sorry, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. What is God's will for your life? What is God's will for your life? A lot of Christians, particularly new Christians, want to know. I I want to know what God's will is. I'm saved. I've come to know Him. I just want to know what His will is. His will is actually fairly simple to know. And in this passage, He gives us uh, a number of things. We're going to look at five of them this morning. Five things that are the will of God for your life. The Lord... Well, he says very clearly that the will of the Lord or the will of God is your sanctification, your sanctification. You see, the Lord is in the business of saving souls. We were born in sin. We were separated from God. And God's desire, his number one desire for you is that you come to personal faith in Jesus Christ and you come to know him. And when you come to know Him, you are justified. That is, God declares you righteous in His sight. But He also sanctifies you. That means He sets you apart from sin and sets you apart to God. You remember the beginning of this uh, story of the Thessalonians, that they were sanctified by God. They turned from idols to the living God and to serve the living God. And so that's sanctification. It's, it's um, being set apart for a greater purpose, set apart to God. And we are sanctified. The Scripture tells us that. First uh, Thessalonians 4 teaches us how our lives can be transformed. And it really is the beginning instruction in this book or in this uh, letter as to, okay, now that you're saved and, and all the encouragements that Paul gives at the first three chapters are over, he goes, here's how to live. Here's how to live a sanctified life. Or maybe a better way of saying it is, if you want to know God's will, do this. Here it is. Okay? We are to be sanctified. What is God's will for your life? The first one we looked at last week, but we'll just cover it briefly. Verse 3. It says, abstain from sexual immorality. Paul begins in verses 1 through 8, telling us that we are to abstain from sexual immorality. And if your life is marked by lust 
immoral desires, feeding on porn, thinking about sex all the time, or feeling like you deserve to fulfill every desire that you have, then this is the will of God for your life, your sanctification. Abstain from sexual immorality. We covered that last week. So if you're unmarried, the answer to lust is actually found in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 9. I I, uh, alluded to it last week. It says, But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. You say, well, that's kind of a low view of marriage, isn't it? You know what? The scripture is extremely practical. And sometimes we like to think of it as being way up here and, you know, in the clouds somewhere. But in reality, it's right down to the shoe leather on the street. And he's saying, look, if this is a problem, get married. That is the place for sexual behavior uh, with your own wife or your own husband. The answer to married couples is also found in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 2 through 5. It says, Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body. But the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except with consent for a time that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer, and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So it's very clear throughout the New Testament that the only proper place for sexual intimacy is in the marriage relationship, and it is only appropriate between a husband with his own wife or a wife with her own husband. And so Paul writes this in 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 4, abstain from sexual immorality. So we are to be sanctified or set apart in our sexual behavior, set apart from the sin of sexual immorality, and set apart to God or following what God teaches about sexual behavior. It is God's will for us to have pure sexual behavior. So that's sanctification. Sanctification. Well, what else is God's will for my life? Verses 9 and 10. It's, well, let's read it. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. We urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. So Paul's answer of what is God's will for my life? It's to love one another. For me to love you, for you to love me. I know that's hard that way. It's easy for me to love you. It's hard for you to love me. But you're commanded to do it anyway. So there you are. The opposite of lust is love. Lust is all about me, what's in it for me. Love is all about you. How can I uh, meet your needs? And apparently the Thessalonian believers really got it. They really did. They got it. They understood that. Paul writes, um, well, I I just read it. Um, 
So to me, as I look at this whole passage on love and how we are to show love to one another, I think we have to go back and appreciate God's love for us because that's the standard. That's the standard. God's love for us. Do you think about that very often? Do you think about God's love for you? You should. You should have great thoughts about God. You should have great thoughts about who He is. You should have great thoughts about what He has done for you. What, how He has demonstrated His love for you. I want to think about that for a few minutes. Jeremiah 31.3 says this, The Lord has appeared of, uh, of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Do you know that's what the Lord thinks about you? I have loved you with an everlasting love. And God has done everything necessary to draw you to Himself all through your life to the point where you came to understand God's love and you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. His love was drawing you. With loving kindness I have drawn you. Think about the most famous verse in all of the Scripture. For God so loved the world. That, that two-letter word, so. So loved. It's, there's no end to it. There's no beginning. There's no end. It's an everlasting love. It's a love that led Jesus Christ to empty Himself. Make Himself of no reputation. Come to this earth and die on the cross of shame for your sins. For your sins. For my sins. Wow, what love. What love. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. We've never had a gift like that before. It's the greatest of all gifts. The Lord Jesus Christ. So that whoever believes in Him should not perish. Wow, He saved us from an eternity in hell. He saved us from the wrath of God that's coming. Wow, what a gift that you might have everlasting life. You know, it's easy to say the words, I love you. But is it Missouri, the show me state? Is it, is it Missouri, the show me state? Yeah. Most of us come from Missouri in our hearts. Show me. You say you love me, show me. And this is what the Bible says about that. God demonstrated. God showed us His love. God demonstrates His love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You talk about love. That's the Lord Jesus Christ's love for you. 1 John 3, 1 says, See how, much, see how very much our Father loves us, for He calls us His children, and that is what we are. I remember, I've probably told you this story before, but it bears telling again. Years ago when I was in the intern program, it was required of each of the students to give a devotional um, each morning. And we did it on a rotating basis. Now we had nine months of individual rotation, um, individual devotionals, and there's only one that I remember, and that's going back to 1979. But it's still very fresh in my mind. It was so profound and it was so effective. It was Randy Walker. Many of you know who he is. And Randy got up there and he sat down in the chair and he began to quote scriptures. 
That's all he did the whole time. He didn't, he didn't add anything to it. It was just straight scripture. And he started off by saying something like this. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who doeth good. And he went through all of the passages of scripture, just one after the other, of, of how wretched and sinful and wicked and evil we are. And we were, with each new verse, we were kind of, slouching more and more in our chairs. And then he stopped and he looked at each one of us in the face. Didn't say a thing, just looked at us in the face. He says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the sons of God. Wow, what love. Never forgot it. I don't think I ever will. But that's what Paul is describing here, is is God's love for us. And the response of the Thessalonians to God's love was, wow, if God has loved us that way, then, then we need to love each other. We need to love the brethren. If God has loved us and He has saved us, then we need to love those whom God has saved. And we need to love them just as much. It's clear that God loves us. The greatest demonstration of love ever was that Christ died for us as our substitute and paid the penalty of our sin on the cross by dying there for you. His love is without question. You know, it says in Romans 5, 5, he says that when we receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, God gives us His Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit of God dwells in us. And uh, He is the Holy Spirit of promise. We are taught by God that He loves us and He's given Himself for us. But it says in Romans 5, 5, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Not only are we taught that God loves us, but God teaches us by giving us the Holy Spirit that we ought to love one another. His love is poured out in us. Why? That we might pour out our love for one another. Jesus taught that. He says in John thirteen thirty four. he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. The scripture also says, the same thing in 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Well, the Thessalonians were remarkable in their love for one another. Not only did they love each other, but it's clear from this passage that their love extended towards believers, other believers, who were not part of their fellowship. They were not part of their local church. Because it says here that uh, they were taught by God to love one another from the beginning. But Paul says that you love all the brethren 
who are in all Macedonia. That's a pretty wide stretch of love. They were, stretch, they were reaching out to other believers. And I think it's great. You know, it's easy for us to be caught up with, if we love one another, to love each other here in this local body of believers. And it's right and it's good. Love each other in our own fellowship. But the Lord has believers throughout the whole world. And we are to love all of them. It was a kind of love that reached out to help the believers throughout Macedonia. It was a kind of love that caused a man like George Mueller to love not only his own congregation, but to love missionaries who were sent out to China. Hudson Taylor was a missionary at that time, went out as the China Inland Mission to uh, reach China with the gospel. And George Mueller loved him and loved the people who were getting saved in China and supported that work tremendously. We often think about George Mueller and his work among the orphanage, which was fabulous, fantastic, the work that he did there. At one point, he had over 2,000 orphans whom he was feeding on a daily basis. But what we often forget about him is that he went in his love, not only did he love these children and love the congregation that he was from and love the people and the work that was going on in the city there, but he loved the church worldwide. And much of his giving was actually to missionary enterprises, missionary work overseas. Love that uh, causes believers to cross over denominational barriers to minister to needs of people from other churches, to support missionaries, whether they were necessarily commended from the assemblies or not, and work together with believers who are outside of our circles. We are to love all the brethren. All the brethren. Paul says, you're good at love, you Thessalonians. You're good at it. What is God's will for your life? Increase more and more in your love. If your love, if, if loving you and loving other believers is part of our sanctification, what does it look like? Well, let's take a look at what it looks like. First John three sixteen. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. Okay, so we know God demonstrated his love toward us by doing what? By dying for us. Okay. We know love because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's what love looks like. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? And so Paul is saying, or John is saying this, look, it's easy to say, I love you to, uh, to the brethren. It's easy to say that. And you say, well, you know what? I would die for you. That sounds very noble, doesn't it? I would die for you. And uh, John is saying, okay, well, let's, let's take an easier test. I know you're saying you would die for the believers, but that believer over there has a need, a financial need. That believer has a need for some encouragement or some visit or something like that. That believer over there needs uh, you to come alongside and be a help to them. Would you do that much? We say, no, well, I would die for them. No, well, no, if you won't even reach into your pocket and help them, you're not going to die for them. 
Okay? And so Paul, John is basically saying, look, here's a practical test. Here's a practical gauge for how much you love. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. First John 4.20 says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is what? He's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. What about the Christian who does not love his brother at all? What about that Christian? Well, brothers and sisters, he's not a Christian at all. It's an impossibility. It says he who says he loves God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Our love for other believers is actually one of the proofs that we are truly believers. And so I ask you some questions. Are you lifting loads? Are you showing hospitality? Are you washing one another's feet? Feet. That's plural. Is it costing you to serve and to love? We know that it cost our Lord to love us, to demonstrate his love toward us. But what's it costing you in time, in effort, financially, emotionally, or in actual needs to demonstrate your love for other believers? Husbands, it starts with your wife. It says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's a good place to start in your own family. But it extends to your family and to your church family and to believers around the world. Let me ask you, has your love for the brethren been absolutely stretched to the limit? Okay. If not, love more and more. That's what Paul is saying. Increase in love more and more. Or as he says in Hebrews 13.1, let brotherly love continue. Okay, so that's another aspect of our sanctification. What is God's will for your life? Well, verse 11 says... Aspire to lead a quiet life. Aspire to lead a quiet life. That's God's will for your life. Some believers live a life, I think, that is too quiet. I mean like they're hermits. They come to church on Sunday, but during the week, you don't know whether they're dead or alive, you know? And uh, they show up Sunday, go, okay, they made it another week. (laughs) They go home, they shut the door, they live a protected, solitary life where no one gets to know them. And that's certainly quiet, but that's not what Paul is talking about here. Believers like that need to demonstrate, that's the key word, demonstrate love for one another. And so demonstration requires action, and we need to be actively involved in the lives of other believers. But there are believers who are way, way too active. And you just need to go up to them sometime and just say, slow down, take a breath, focus. And they're like the cartoon character. You remember the, the cartoon character, the Tasmanian devil? He could never stand still. It always had to be, you know. And there are believers like that that are just so active. There's just this flurry of activity. But nothing is really accomplished. There are believers who want to be in every activity, every ministry, every opportunity, and quite frankly, they don't do anything 
well. There is a saying in the world that is this. He is, the, he is a jack of all trades and oh, master of none. You got it. A jack of all trades, a master of none. It refers to the guy who wants to show off how smart he is in everything, especially building you know, stuff. Um, they want to come across as the expert, and they know enough of everything to be dangerous, you know. Um, they know enough about electrical work to get shocked. And they know enough about plumbing to spring a leak. And, it, and he likes to spout off about how much he knows about framing and HVAC and on and on and on it goes. And there are Christians like that as well. They are jack-of-all-trades, jacks-of-all-trades. Whatever, however you say that in English. <clears throat> and they want to come across as experts in evangelism, but they show no fruit. Masters of teaching, but where is their knowledge? Leaders in service, but they never get anything finished. They are masters of none. I've known people who have literally run around the world, literally around the world, Chasing one ministry, one calling, one uh, opportunity after another, and never accomplishing anything for the Lord. I have a Facebook friend who is a self-proclaimed leader, stating that he represents millions of evangelical Christians around the world. And every day, almost without fail, he posts a selfie. Do you know what a selfie is? It's taking a camera picture of yourself usually with somebody famous. You know, when I do selfies, it's usually with somebody famous, my wife, you know. And, uh, but he likes taking selfies or having pictures taken of him with people who are famous. So I just, for fun, I looked at it last night to see what he did this past week. And uh, he has a Hollywood star. And every time he posts something like this, every person that he posts about, this is my good friend, so-and-so. And it's, you know, some Hollywood movie star um, at the beginning. He drops some name of the star or some spiritual leader. This past week, he posted selfies of himself standing next to the Pope, next to the German federal government politician, having dinner with a consultant on evangelism, and then with the ecumenical patriarch of Constantinople. How many of those people do you know? And I have asked him publicly, because he always does this public forum and everybody's all liking, oh, wow, you got to shake hands with the Pope, you had a meeting with the Pope or whatever. And he, he likes, you know, people like it by the hundreds. And, and uh, I usually come in and I simply ask him a question. Were you able to share the gospel with the Pope when you saw him? And he won't. And he'll talk about everything else but the truth of the Word of God, the truth of the Gospel. His goal is to, let's talk about things that we have in common. I don't have anything in common with the Pope. It says in the Scripture that if anybody brings another Gospel to you that is no Gospel at all, let him be anathema. That's what the Bible says. He is bringing a Gospel. It's good news. It's not good news at all. It's do this and you will be saved where the Scripture is very plain that says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. It's a different gospel. Charles um, Wesley wrote in a hymn, and in it it says this, Keep us little and unknown. 
prized and loved by God alone. Aspire to lead a quiet life. As elders, we have had to counsel people to focus on one thing and do it well. Just focus on this one thing and do it well. Paul said, this one thing I do. Okay? And it's good for us to remember, if you've been given an opportunity to serve, or you have an opportunity to minister in some way, do it well. Do it with all your heart. Devote yourself to it and stop running all over creation trying to prove that you're spiritual. Learn what the Lord would have you do and do it with all your might. Aspire to lead a quiet, not a frantic, frazzled, frenetic life. It's interesting, you know, there's actually a play on words here in this um, verse. Aspire to lead a quiet life. Aspire actually means to strive, to labor, to devote yourself, to give yourself. And it's, it's an active word, right? And he says, work hard at being quiet. <laughs> it's, a, it's a play on words here. And he couples it with that quiet, peaceful life. Strive to be peaceful. You know, the world has enough restless, frantic people. The Lord is our shepherd, the scripture says, and he makes us lie down in green pastures and beside still waters. Oh, how much we need that, that refreshment from the Lord. And if you find that your life is just a whirlwind of activities um, where you cannot stop and listen to the still, small voice of the Lord because of your work, because of your business, because of your busyness, then this command is for you. Aspire to lead a quiet life. There, that's tough for a type A personality, but that is part of your sanctification. If God's, It's God's desire for you. I'll tell you something, there is no one that has ever lived that had more work to do than the Lord Jesus Christ. But nowhere do you find him frazzled. He leads by example. What is God's will for your life? Aspire to live a quiet life. What is God's will for your life? Verse 11b, mind your own business. Sam and, and a couple of us went and watched a movie, and in the, uh, there was one line in the movie, and I hit Sam on the shoulder, and I said, hey, he's stealing from my sermon tomorrow. And he said, the, the phrase was used, mind your own business. How many of you knew that was in the scripture? Okay, I knew it was from my mom. <laughs> you know, I'd heard that early on in my life. Mind your own business. It's usually because I was, you know, prying into something that had nothing to do with me. And then here, you know, you read on in the scripture, you go, oh, that's where she got it from. That's where he got it from. Mind your own business. So you may be surprised to find that phrase here. Um, usually it has to, to do with people, you're saying to people, but out, but out of my business. You know, there, really, there are people who are really nosy. They feel they have a right to know everything that is going on in other people's lives. 
And they're usually the type of people whose own lives are kind of a mess. You know, I don't know if you know that or not, but that's usually the way it is. They want to know everything that's going on in everybody's life, but their own lives need that first part, live a, aspire to live a quiet life. Paul is saying to the believers, do you want to know what the will of God is for your life? Stop sticking your nose in other people's business. Don't be a busybody. Well, there's wisdom from the Proverbs about this too. Proverbs 25.17 says this, Seldom set foot in your neighbor's house, lest he become weary of you and hate you. Good advice. Proverbs 26.17 says, He who passes by and meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a dog by the ears. If you come up to a dog and you grab it by its ears, well, you can expect it to bite you. And so it should. And if you meddle in other people's business, you can expect them to take a bite out of you too. If you're not part of the problem and you're not part of the solution, butt out. Mind your own business. Proverbs 26.20 says, Where there is no wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no tailbearer, strife ceases. A busy body meddles in other people's business. And it's usually because they're looking for that juicy morsel of gossip that they can just take to their own hearts and say, well, let, me, let me hear what's going on in your life. And of course, dear brother, of course, dear sister, I want to pray for you. That would be nice if that's what they actually did, that they left your house or left your presence and they went right to their house and they got down beside their bed and they, between them and the Lord only and forever, they just committed your issues, your needs, your concerns, your things to the Lord. That would be great if that's what really happened. But so often they're not doing it for that reason. They're doing it for, oh, wow. Hey, uh, by the way, Matt, did you hear about so-and-so? You know, or, hey, Ron, I, let me tell you something here. Okay, and there's this just transfer of information, and nobody ever prays about it. It's just gossip over and over and over again. Mind your own business. And it's this whole idea of, like, a per, the proverb is really talking about, like a person going out and gathering up sticks and pieces of wood and setting fire to it. And that's what happens when we go out and we talk to people, and all we're doing is we're taking in these things that we really can't help with and we set fire to it and it's like gossip and the spread of gossip is like flames licking up the wood and causes so much damage so what is god's will for your life be quiet mind your own business stop this madness it only does harm what is god's will for your life work with your own hands jesus was a carpenter he worked with his own hands Jesus called disciples, a number of whom were fishermen who worked hard with their own hands. Paul was a tent maker who worked with his own hands and supplied his own needs as well as the needs of those who worked with him. Bill McDonald used to say, work hard for the supply of your current necessities. Put everything above that into the work of the Lord and trust God for your future. And Paul set that example for the church in Thessalonica by coming to them, by ministering to them, by sharing the gospel with them, but by making tents at the same time 
so that he did not become a burden to them. Um, and he supplied his own need, and he lived that way before them. Paul had taught the believers that the Lord Jesus Christ was coming again. And it's possible, many people believe that the reason this is here in this chapter is because in light of the second coming of the Lord, Jesus is coming again. And people began to think, well, if Jesus is coming again, and it could be any minute, then why should I waste my time going to the job? Why should I work? I'll just wait for the Lord. Isn't that spiritual? No, it's not. It's not spiritual at all. And they waited. And they didn't do anything. And pretty soon they got hungry. And so they had to sponge off of other people, other saints, until the Lord returned. Well, they would have lived their whole life because the Lord still has not come back. Now, he could come back. You know, we've had examples of this in our own day, too. The Lord is coming again. We know that. Do you, how many of you believe the Lord is coming again? How many believe the Lord could come today? Okay, there's a lot of you. How many of you are not going to go to work tomorrow because of it? Well, that's not fair. You're off on disability. <laughs> he is coming soon. But we've had religious zealots who have ignored the biblical warning about setting dates and have not lived a quiet and peaceable life and have disturbed the peace of other believers by saying the Lord is coming back on such and such a date and you better be ready for that date. Some of you remember the phrase Y2K. What's Y2K? Some of you young whippersnappers don't remember that. You weren't even alive then. Okay, Y2K. It's when the, there was going to be a change of centuries, right? From 1900s to 2000s and all the computers in the world were going to crash. The economic system of the world was going to collapse and everybody was going to be in terror. And it was the soon coming of the Lord as people would uh, talked about at that time. And... Um, some simple-minded people began to sell everything that they had and to wait for the coming of the Lord January 1st, 2000. And on January 2nd, 2000, they realized that they were fools and had been fooled. And, uh, but they had sold everything. And they were penniless at that point. More recently, another false prophet, Harold Camping, resurrected his prophecies from 1989. Some of you heard about his prophecies in 2012, I think it was. Um, but they, they were really old prophecies. He had just resurrected, and they were prophecies of his own making. There was a man who in 1989 wrote a book, 89 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1989. Okay? In 1990, he had to edit it to 90 reasons why, you know what I'm saying? Crazy stuff. So he brushed off the dust from his first failure and sucked even more people into his lies. He began, and these people began literally selling off their homes, their possessions, and they, uh, uh, family radio bought a whole bunch of motor, motor homes and they began to crisscross across the country telling people that Jesus was going to come back on a predicted date that was learned only by Harold Camping himself by doing mathematical calculations, and it was going to be specifically on May 21st, 2011. And at the end of May 21st, 2011, he realized that his prophecy had failed. Oh, wait, wait, wait. No, it hasn't. 
Jesus didn't come back physically, my mistake. He came back uh, spiritually on that day. As soon as I heard that, I thought, wow, that just sounds just like the Jehovah's Witnesses with all of their failed prophecies. Same thing. Um, So he came back and he said, no, I, I made a mistake. I thought it was the physical presence of the Lord on that date. Instead, it was the spiritual presence of the Lord. He came back on May 21st, 2011. But he is coming back physically. That will be in October 21st, 2011. Before that date came, in June of that year, Harold Camping was struck with a stroke. And on uh, October October 21st, 2011, midnight, it failed. It did not come to pass. Jesus did not return to the earth. Camping later acknowledged his sin on that specific sin, that he should not have set that date. That's the only sin he confessed. He's a false teacher. He's a false prophet. The man I cannot believe is saved. He died December 15, 2013, and the Lord still has not come back. And yet, the scripture is very plain, and we're going to look at it next week, that Jesus is coming again, and he's coming soon. But we are forbidden to set dates in the scripture. Countless people stopped working and just waited for the return of the Lord. And it seems like that is what was happening in Thessalonica as well. They were doing the same things. And what we see here in in uh, the first letter to the Thessalonians, is in seed form. But by the time we get to Second Thessalonians, Paul writes to them there, and he says, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, in other words, if you're going to stop working based on the soon coming of the Lord, and you're not going to work, let him not eat. Okay? You want to know the cure for somebody not working? You don't feed them. Okay? You withhold the food so that they might go back to work. And so it was not a kindness to support people who were misjudging, misunderstanding, misrepresenting the Scripture. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all. And so what were they doing with their time? They were becoming busybodies. That's what it says. But you are busybodies. So there again, we have the in seed form in this chapter, we have what was going to ultimately become a serious problem in the church. And so believers, look, Jesus is coming again. And it could be today. It could be tomorrow. But he does not tell us to stop work, to liquidate everything and go on Christian welfare. This is the will of God for you. And that is to work hard with your hands. Work hard for the supply of your need. This is also the will of God for you. Put everything over and above that after you've met your needs into the work of the Lord. That others might hear of the Lord Jesus Christ coming. And trust the Lord for your future. And in, in doing so, you will walk properly. The last verse here that we're looking at, walk properly towards those who are outside. What does that mean? It means that those who followed the quackery of the people who were proclaiming Jesus coming in Y2K 
and those who follow the quackery of Harold Camping and those who follow the quackery of anybody who sets dates like this and forsakes working hard with their hands, they are a very bad testimony to unbelievers. It is a black eye to Christianity for, for people who profess to be saved to, to do something like this. Um, to me, Harold Camping and like him, those like him, brought shame on the name of Christ. And there was no reason for it. So next week, Lord willing, we will actually look at the subject of the second coming of Jesus Christ and what is about to happen. But in the meantime, go to work tomorrow. Work hard. Work hard because you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ in whatever task he has given you to do. You are serving him. He is your master. Be a good testimony for the Lord, for this is the will of God for your life. That is your sanctification. That is what sets you apart for him. Work with your own hands. Be a hard worker, not a loafer. If anyone will not work, he should not eat. Some Christians go through life thinking that the world owes them a living. And many Christians are gullible to these con artists. Don't be gullible. Spend your time in useful, productive service and occupation. And walk properly. Uh, Verse 12 is talking about there. And God will provide all of your needs. So, tomorrow, go to work. And while you're at work, mind your own business. And don't be frantic in everything that you do in service for the Lord. If you're going to serve the Lord, serve Him. I, I encourage that. We always encourage that. But do one thing well. Just give your whole heart to the one thing that God wants you to do. He gives you one thing at one time. Aspire to live a quiet, peaceful life. Rest in the Lord. Trust in Him. All right, let's pray and we'll close our meeting with prayer. Lord, we thank You so much that You are so practical. And Lord, how easy it is to get caught up in hype that um, is often brought to our attention. And we just pray, Lord, that as believers we might live peaceful, quiet, uh, calm lives, dedicated to serving You, serving You with all of our hearts, our minds, our souls, our being. Lord, doing the one task, the one thing that You give us to do and doing it well. I pray, Lord, that we might work hard and that we might use the resources that you've given us to not only supply the needs that we have, but also that we might be like the Thessalonican church that loved the brethren, not only in our own midst, but the brethren worldwide. We pray, Lord, that we might be supportive of the work that is going on around the world. Lord, just bless those who follow your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.